morning, everyone. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel today. I'm Greg Paris. We're so glad that you have chosen to be with us today. We're in the middle of a series of messages and theme for this month called Sabbath, Sabbath Rest. And we're talking about this most important value that God instructed from the very beginning of human, human history that we should honor and keep and remember the Sabbath. And we've been talking about ways that we can add value to our lives through that. So today, uh, the subtitle is Numbering Our Days. I've used as our text this, the 90th Psalm. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 90. I'm going to read uh, that entire psalm for us today. Our custom at Union Chapel is to stand to hear God's word. So as you're able, would you please? And Psalm 90 reads, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days come to 70 years or 80. If our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. May God inspire us today and encourage us through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. On July the 4th, uh, 1999, Beth and I hosted all the members of my family of origin. So our boys were there and my parents were there, both of my sisters and their families, extended families were there. And so we all gathered at the lake. This has been a family tradition now for many, many years on the 4th of July. Uh, Of my parents' generation and their grandchildren, the oldest of the grandchildren, his name was Caleb. And... He was very, very special. Uh, He was typically the most handsome and the most winsome and the most impressive person in whatever room he happened to be in. He was a follower of Jesus. He was wise beyond his years, and he was loved by virtually everyone who ever met him. He was also an exceptional athlete. You know, just to add to this, he was one of those four-star kids. You know, he's handsome and smart and all that, impressive in every way, kind of annoying Um, But he was also a great athlete. Uh, For example, he had already played a key role, in fact, the leading hitter on on an all-star team in the Lafayette area when he was 16 that won the Colt World Series. So by the time he was old enough to drive, he had already been part of a team that had won a world championship. Okay. 
what few athletic records I still held at my high school, our high school, Caleb came along and smashed them. I am not bitter about that. I mean, after all, he is family, so why not keep it in the family sort of thing? The year before our gathering at the lake, he had established a new single-season scoring record in basketball at Indiana Wesleyan University. In fact, one of those games his junior year, he, he actually made 11 three-pointers in a single game. If you follow that sort of thing, you know that that's remarkable. Um, he was really looking forward to his senior year at the university and then on to full-time farming with his family. This July 4th was like many before. We fished early in the day. We had a lot of fun on the water, you know, skiing and tubing and all of that. There was lots of food, lots of cutting up, lots of, lots of frivolity, and we had a great time. The end of the day on July 4th ended as it always did. From the time all the little nephews and cousins were old enough to start playing some competitive sports, I organized a three-on-three basketball tournament at the end of the day on July 4th when we were all together. And by this time, of course, the boys were full-grown. And our three-on-three game that particular year, as it did every year, took on a unique level of intensity. If you, if you are imagining, you know, kind of a giddy, laughy, casual, let's just have some fun out on the court, then you are misreading this, this three-on-three competition completely. You see, there was bragging rights attached to it. Whatever team won the three-on-three best of seven on, on July 4th got bragging rights the rest of the year. So wherever we were, Thanksgiving or Christmas, you know, we could trash talk the other three that had lost. And so that was, part, that was part of the agenda. So our two sons, Aaron and Isaac, and our other nephew, Mitch, was, well, I'm sorry, our two sons plus Caleb's brother, Zach, who was not a bad athlete himself. He was, uh, he was an all-state honorable mention in football and actually scored 30. He still holds our high school's junior varsity single-game scoring record. He scored 36 points in a, in a, in a, in a B-team game, uh, a junior varsity game. That's 24 minutes. Four six-minute quarters, he scores 36 points in 24 minutes in a JV game. So he's on their team, the other guys. And so then it was, it was our other nephew, Mitch, who was the youngest and, you know, the least developed at the time, and, and Caleb and me. Uh, because Caleb and me were actually the best players. <laughs> the, series, the series went to seven games. And not only to seven games, it went to the last possession of the seventh game. And Caleb, as you might guess, hit the winning shot, about a 27-foot jump shot. It was played under protest because the claim was that the pick I set to free Caleb for the last shot was an illegal screen. And being the oldest and the arbiter of the rules, I dismissed the protest immediately. And so <laughs> we won. Yeah. It was a great day. The next morning, uh, Caleb and his dad were on the family farm on July the 5th, scheduled to clean two metal grain bins. And what they did not know is that the auger motor on the bin that Caleb had selected to clean out had shorted out 
and it electrified this metal grain bin. And so when Caleb tried to step into the bin, he put his hand up on the, the doorpost and it caught him there and he was electrocuted and killed. Now I've preached many difficult funerals in my day. Um, that one's the top of the list. The visitation was held at my sister and family's local church. She and, and our family greeted people on the day of the visitation for nine consecutive hours. The following day, the memorial service was held at the local high school where we had all attended, and 1,500 people attended his memorial. It was, um, it was a difficult day. Caleb died at the age of 22. He had less life than the three score and 10 that the Bible allocates, a lot's four. Sometimes you live 70, 80 if your strength holds out. My sister and brother-in-law, Caleb's parents, if they live to be 80, they will think about him every single day, as you would imagine. And for the rest of us, um, all the pain does lessen over time, but it never goes away. It's part of our life now. All of us are growing old. Caleb will be forever young. Now, this is a sermon series on Sabbath, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And I want to submit to you this, this morning that Sabbath is all about time, T-I-M-E. It's about noting time. It's about establishing time to honor the Sabbath. The Judeo-Christian worldview, the worldview that most of us hold, is that we think time is important. We, we mark time. We believe there was a beginning of things and that there will be an end of things. There are certain worldviews, uh, philosophical and religious in our, in our world, that actually believe that the clock of the universe is forever resetting itself. You know, you live a life and then reset. You live 10 lives and then redo. And so the, the clock of history just keeps resetting. But that's not our worldview. For Christians, we believe that time should be kept, that it should be noted that it should be valued. Here's one of the things we say. Now, right after this statement, this is where the amen goes in the sermon. Get ready. This is what we say as Christians. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen. And so we hold on to that. We believe Jesus is coming again. And that chronological time will permit that day to come. So Psalm 90 is a wonderful lesson about time. And perhaps the most memorable of all the verses in Psalm 90 is verse 12. And I'll put a couple of translations of it up on the screen. One says, teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Or teach us to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Yeah. And so we, we see the issue of time. Foolish people, they're the ones who act like this ride never stops. They, they don't take the time to contemplate the limitations of three score and ten. They don't let their mind go there. They think that they're going to get out of this life alive. <laughs> and it's foolish. So this psalm opens with a reminder that God is in the business of eternity from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. This psalm unpacks for us all kinds of ebbs and flow with regard to life. Sometimes life is good. Sometimes life is very challenging. But God is with us every step of the way. It doesn't sugarcoat or put some imitation sweetener on life. It says sometimes life is hard 
and life is difficult, whether you live 70 or 80 years, all of them are, are a challenge. And so it gives it to, to us straight and then reminds us that God is good and we, we need his blessing and his favor to live well and to finish well. And so we note from this psalm that life is filled with seasons and epics and rhythms and that we should find ourselves adjusting to the proper God-honoring rhythms for our lives for every day, for every week, for every year, for generations to come. Now, in your outline, you'll see a couple of points. The first one is this, and it's obvious from what we're learning from Psalm 90 so far, and that is that God should teach us to number our days. To number our days, the most obvious lesson to be drawn from this psalm and verse 12 is the relative brevity of life, right? I mean, we're all going to die. Sooner or later, death will claim us all. And it's possible that God may have given us the fourth commandment in a primary way to give us an opportunity on a weekly basis to pause, to stop, and to contemplate our eternal life. To ask the questions, what happens when we die? Where are we going? What has God done to help us to prepare for that inevitability? That one day we will be in eternity. There, there, are, three, there are three R's to the Sabbath. One, the first R is rest. It's on your outline. The second is renewal. And the third is reverence. One leads to the other. When you take time to rest and actually connect to God, that will provide spiritual renewal for your life. And that's something that all of us need doesn't matter how long you've lived for God or how long you've walked with God, from time to time, all of us need points of renewal. If we're going to start well, run well, and finish well, you know, the Apostle Paul said, I run the race, I finished the course, I kept the faith. That's a, big, that's a big testimony right there. Get to the end of it after a long race and say, I still got the faith. In order to get to the end with your faith, you have to have renewal points, and it takes time to, to rest and to renew your connection with God. And when you renew your connection with God, that is what leads to reverence. You become worshipful, you are grateful, you're thankful to God. And so these three R's, rest and renewal and reverence, they all take time. Think about it. It takes time to rest. You can't just think about resting, talk about resting, come to church and imagine resting, but actually take the time to rest. And so it's hard for us because in, in, our, um, in our materialistic world and capitalistic system, um, time is money. Time is money. You've heard that phrase, right? And if time is money, let's just assume it's true. Time is money. How can I possibly take one day off in seven and rest? How can I possibly do that? Time is money. I'm losing money. Well, wait a minute. I wonder if we ask the question, what does it cost us to practice Sabbath rest. What is the price tag on it? What's the bottom line on that? Well, there's an interesting study that's been done. I want to share this with you. This comes from Dan Butner. And Dan Butner wrote a book called The Blue Zones. And for this book, he did research. He went around the world and asked this question Are there groups of people in the world who actually live longer than the people in the general population around them? It's a fascinating question, isn't it? And he actually found clusters of people in various parts of the world that do live longer than the general population in their area. And it's what you might expect. They actually practiced certain disciplines. You know, they didn't smoke and they didn't eat a lot of animal fat and they, 
they walked a lot and they valued family and relationships. And so these were all common to these clusters of people who live longer. And he found one of these groups in the United States. And it just so happens that one of these groups in the United States live in California, in the city of Loma Linda. Loma Linda, California. And they happen to be part of the Seventh-day Adventists. Now, Seventh-day Adventists, these are Christian people. They're Orthodox. They believe the, the basics of the faith, just like everyone else. But they practice the Sabbath. Seventh-day Adventists worship. They have their worship services on Saturday, and they have Sabbath on Sunday. And what Butner discovered is that these Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, California, who practiced the Sabbath, were actually living 12 years longer than the general population. 12 years. So he did some math, and, this, and he asked, because they're practicing the Sabbath, this was a variable now that was added to their diet and exercise and all that other stuff. They practiced the Sabbath. And this is what he did. He took the average lifespan of, this, of these folks in Loma Linda, and he then calculated the number of Sabbaths that they would have practiced, number of weeks in their life, divided that by 365, and guess what that number was? It was 12 years. So over the course of their lives, they practiced Sabbath all of those years, and then at, at, at the, what would normally be the end of the general population's lives, they lived another 12 years. So they practiced Sabbath using 12 years worth of Sabbaths along the way, and then on the end of it, got 12 more years of life. So what is the net cost of practicing the Sabbath in this particular case? The net cost is zero. As it turns out, scientifically, it doesn't cost you anything to practice this. If time is money, what's it going to cost me? I'm pausing just to let you think about that. Think about it. Isn't it? That's just fascinating to me. So interesting. Now let me just, uh, let me just, uh, we're turning the corner now and this is the second half of the sermon. And what I want to do for just for a moment is I want to make a comparison between the technical virtual world that, that we're living in now with all of the communication technology and computer capacity virtual world. So we have a real world and we have a virtual world that's available to us. You know, it's, it's what's real and then what's fuzzy. We're not sure what's real. We call it the virtual world. And then I, I want to compare that with the teachings of Jesus that said that there's a natural physical world that we all live in and we get it, this three-dimensional world, physical world, natural world that we live in. And Jesus also said there's a spiritual world that's an unseen world, but, but, the, but there's actually interplay, there's interconnectedness between the two. So I want to I just consider this natural world and virtual world that we live in with our technology compared to this physical and spiritual world that Jesus talked to us about. So let's start over here with the world we live in right now and this virtual reality and just talk about that just for a moment. We, we are living in a time when everything has sped up. The, the second hand on your watch takes one minute, 60 seconds to go around once, right, to make a lap. In the same amount of time that your second hand makes one lap on your watch, a text message traveling at the speed of light has actually traveled 11.2 million miles. We have gone past the jet age like it was standing still. 
zip. It's an, it's an instant world. It's a, it's a phenomenon. Humanity now has waded into a shoreline between real and virtual, between what's solid and what actually f- seems to be fluid, what is real and what is make-believe. You know, what's three-dimensional, the world that we understand around us, and what may become four-dimensional or five dimensions, you know, that begin to bend your mind. And it's hard to comprehend. We have gamers now. There's a whole section, a whole population of gamers. Some of these guys are 30 years old living in their mother's basement, and that's what they do all day. They just play games, video games. And they can advance all the way to level 12 as a mercenary raiding a terrorist base until they get blown up by some stray rocket. But all they have to do, these gamers, is hit replay or reset, do over, and you know they maybe text a friend and say, you know, I got all the way to level 12. I'm going for level 13. And you know he works all afternoon trying to get to level 13 until his mother brings dinner down to him at night. But the virtual world, listen to me, is no longer abstract. Soldiers somewhere in the United States at this moment are sipping coffee right now looking at a screen through robotic eyes of a killing drone somewhere in some far off place in the world and all it will take is a slip of the finger or a momentary loss of concentration and and an accidental sin and off goes a deadly missile into some unsuspecting village somewhere in the world. And and, and so we're left to ask questions about this virtual world. Who's in the crosshairs? What's in the address bar? Am I careful to send this only to the people that I want to send it to and not to someone who I don't want to send it to? Is, is a thread attached? Is a link attached that I want or don't want to, to, for this person to receive? You know, who's getting copied on this elect virtual message that I'm sending. I, respond, I, I remind our staff all of the time, uh, especially, especially the, the millennials, because if you've grown up with this technology, it is so natural to you and it is so common to you that you lose track of just how dangerous it can be to you personally. And so I say to our especially the millennials on our staff, that you should go through the world assuming that there is always a camera that is trained on you. If you are outside of the known parameters of your own home, you should assume that someone is watching every move you make. We don't think that way, but we should. Now, that doesn't mean we should live a paranoid life. I think if you're trying to live your life in an honorable way, it doesn't matter to you. You don't have to be paranoid at all. You can just go through life because you know you're not going to take something that's not yours or do something to another person that's wrong or inappropriate. And so you just go through the world. But, but you should be aware that technology is allowing everybody to be seen almost every second of the day. Likewise, you should assume that every email you send, every text, every tweet, every Instagram, every Facebook post is going to be seen and read by virtually every human being on the planet Earth. He said, well, that was, a, that was a personal email. No, it wasn't. You put it in the virtual world and it can go to anyone anywhere. 
at the speed of light. I mean, zip to, to the satellite, zip back down at the speed of light. You should assume that every conversation you have on your smartphone is going to be heard or overheard by every human being on planet Earth. That was a private conversation. No, it wasn't. Not in a virtual world. No, it's not. There are people in this room right now starting to sweat. Oh, no. What have I done? Virtual, quote, virtual mistakes have cost more than one job, one, more than one marriage, more than one friendship. Cyberbullying, online affairs, identity theft, those aren't virtual. Those are real. Do you understand the point I'm making? There's a, what we call a real world and a virtual world, and they are connected. You can't say one is real and the other isn't. They're both real. There's, for example, there is not one of the Ten Commandments you cannot break with an iPad. You think about it. So I bring this discussion up of real and virtual because we've been taught in school that one or the other is what actually matters. But the, but the Bible actually teaches, now jump over to this other side, that both are real and both are important. I want to make the comparison between our real and virtual world and between the physical world and the spiritual world. Jesus, Jesus went up to the woman at the well one day and he was tired. He'd been walking for a long way and she was drawing water from the well and he said, give me a drink of water. Now, what was he asking for? He's asking for H2O. Give me some fresh water to quench my physical thirst. And the conversation ensued with this woman, and finally Jesus said to her, you know, I can give you living water that will cause you to never thirst again, not for the rest of your life. And she went, oh, yeah, right. You're going to give me one drink, and I'm never going to be thirsty again? That's not even possible. And he said, oh, yeah, it's possible. Because he was promising her water that would satisfy the deepest longings of her soul. Living water. Jesus actually described himself as living water. He said, you know, you can take bread, physical bread, and nourish and satisfy your physical body. But he said, I'm the bread of life. You partake of me, you'll never be hungry again. And he was talking about a spiritual reality. He was talking about nourishing your soul, nourishing your spirit. So Jesus is constantly teaching us that there's this connection between the physical world and the spiritual world, the seen world and the unseen world. And both are very, very real. I don't, I don't know where your theology is in all this, but I can just tell you there's a whole lot going on in this room every week when we worship together in the unseen world and perhaps more in the unseen world than is happening in the, in the seen world. This is what I believe. For example, I, one of the things that I think are probably true is that God actually assigns an angel to every one of the people that belong to him. All of his children have an angel assigned to us, at least one. And so there may be as many angels in this, in this room right now as there are people. And probably more angels than people because some of you need a lot more help than just one angel can do. 
because you're constantly putting yourself in precarious situations. Over the years, over the decades, I've had people independent from one another in different parts of the country uh, and at different times, sometimes years apart at Union Chapel, people will come up to me and describe an angel that they see when I'm preaching. And every single time over the years when people have, have described this angel that stands behind me when I preach, they give the identical description to the detail. How, how tall it is, what it's wearing, its body language, all that stuff. That's interesting, isn't it? So there's an unseen world that's just as real as the physical world. And it's right for us to be aware of it and sensitive to it. And indeed, it's the spiritual, it's the spiritual dimension that actually nourishes the deepest longings of the heart and soul of every person. So, we, so the Sabbath then provides opportunity to cultivate and nourish and nurture the spiritual part. That leads to the second point that I want to make, and it's an obvious one on your outline. just want to write this down. Rest as spiritual food. Sabbath as spiritual rest. It's spiritual in nature. Now, most of us are heirs to the pilgrims, and the pilgrims came to the shores of this continent, and they established some values. And one of the values that they established was industry and work, hard work, you know, a work ethic. And, and in America, we have embraced a, a strong work ethic. We, we do that pretty well. That's a cultural value. It's something that we're all exposed to and we actually benefit from. Just a handful of weeks ago, I preached a whole sermon on earning money and the whole theme was the biblical emphasis on industry and work and, and engaging yourself in meaningful ways. I mean, the summary statement was from the Apostle Paul when he said, if a man won't work, neither shall he eat. And so you see the seriousness of engaging in meaningful labor. And so, and so we honor that and we value that. We have these aphorisms, these uh, pithy little statements of truth that we use in our culture. For example, we'll say, a stitch in time saves nine. Or, and you can finish this one, a penny saved is a penny earned. Or we say, idle hands are the devil's workshop or playground. And so we have these little pithy little statements. But let me just challenge your memory to come up with one that has to do with rest or meditation or prayer. And you'll search your memory in vain trying to find one because as it turns out, people in the United States at least value, if, if push came to shove and I forced you to decide one is a higher value than the other and I said, what is a higher value, work or rest? Virtually all of you in the room would say, well, actually work is a high, little higher value than rest. And we get that from culture. And we get this for a lot of good reasons. But the Bible doesn't always, doesn't only teach us that Work and industry is a, is a virtue, but it also says that sometimes if you overwork and you're over-industrious, that it can be a hindrance to the more valuable things, which is a spiritual dimension, and so that if you omit the moments of rest and stopping to contemplate and to build your spiritual life, then it can actually hurt you. Jesus uh, told the parable of a great feast this is in Luke 14, and he said there's a great feast. It's a big deal. It's substantial. It's the party you want to be invited to, and so people get invited to it, and all the most important people are going to be there, 
and this is a very rich guy who's put this feast together. I mean, he's got a lot, and so you're invited, and you ought to be happy about that. But Jesus said as soon as people got invited, they started to send their regrets, and they started making excuses. And they said, well, look, I can't come. I, I just did a real estate deal, and i got to finish that, or i got to stay and mow my yard, or I just got married. And all these excuses come in, and Jesus told in this story, this parable, he said that the, the, the guy who had organized the bank had got really upset about this. And so he tells his servants to go out into the highways and byways and compel people to come. And he said, I want my house full. I want everybody to enjoy this banquet. And so everyone was invited. Everyone was included. People all the way out to the very edge of the margins of society. Now they are all invited and included to be part of this great celebration. And we learn the lesson. We learn the value of the spiritual and the invitation that God gives to each of us to draw closer to him and to enjoy the blessings and benefits of a relationship with him. So this whole business of Sabbath, this isn't about, this isn't about rule keeping. This isn't about checking the box, you know, and say, well, I hope you notice that, God. You know, I'm a good little girl because I kept the Sabbath today. I didn't do anything. That's not what this is about. It's not a, about some self-help program. It's not about some one day of vacation every week. It's not about that. Let me put this statement on the screen because I want you to get it. Sabbath is what balances the active parts of life with the holy parts, the spiritual parts, the most valuable parts. Let me just uh, give you this one last illustration. We'll be done. This is from Numbers uh, chapter 11 and Exodus 16. This is the story of God's provision of food in the wilderness during these 40 years of, of wilderness wandering. You remember, God extricated his people from Egyptian bondage under the leadership of Moses. They cross the Red Sea in a miraculous way, and they get out into the Sinai Peninsula, which is a big desert. And for 40 years, they wander in the desert. You remember the story. You've seen the movie. And so they're all in the desert. Now, this Sinai Peninsula, if you have provisions, you can walk across the Sinai in about a week and a half. But the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. This is a, this is a, a forsaken desert. They wandered for 40 years. Now, you understand there's no Chick-fil-A in the Sinai. There's no KFC. There's no Taco Bell in the Sinai. So you've got, you've got to have something to eat. You've got to have something to drink. And there's a million, two million people. And God takes care of them. And the Bible tells us that God provided water for the people, miraculously. And he provided um, uh, health to the people. They didn't get sick. And their clothes didn't wear out. Their sandals, their shoes didn't wear out. So for 40 years, folks are wearing the same stuff, and it doesn't wear out because God's supernaturally providing. And they have to eat. And so what God does is he provides manna. You've heard this. Manna. Every morning, like dew that falls on the ground, there, there was this meal substance that would fall on the ground that they could gather up and they could bake and it would sustain them and it was sweet and it was good and it was every day. There's just one rule. The rule was you could only collect manna for one day, for two days. If you tried to collect manna for two days, what would happen is no matter how you tried to protect it and preserve it, it would always go bad on the second day. It would spoil, it would stink, and it would, it, would, it would have maggots. I don't know why we have to have maggots, but <laughs> maggots. Made the point. 
So no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't make manna last two days, with this exception. On the day before Sabbath, God told the people, now on the day before Sabbath, you collect two days worth of manna. You prepare the food for that day, and then you make a couple of extra loaves for the Sabbath day. And what happened every week for 40 years is the second day on Sabbath, the manna was always just as good and just as sweet and just as satisfying as the first day. And for 40 years, manna fell from heaven that they could collect every day except on the Sabbath. And manna was never found on the Sabbath. Isn't that just as fascinating as it can be? God making clear his expectation. Now compare that with Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40, not 40 years, but 40 days and 40 nights. You see the symbolism there? And so Jesus goes out and he's fasting and he's being tempted by the devil. And so when he gets really hungry after a couple of weeks, the devil comes to him to test him and says, look, you don't have to be physically hungry you can turn these stones on the ground into bread. You can eat right now. So why don't you do that? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It is written, man shall not live by bread, physical bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so what, what Jesus is teaching us and what we learn from the principle of the manna is that God is the one who provides for us. He is our source. He is the one who keeps us. He is the one who takes care of us. He loves us so much that he even feeds us. And that he can be trusted with our lives. And if we give one day to him in seven that there is no net loss in that. In fact, God makes up for all of that loss in order that we would have the spiritual perspective we need in order to live well and finish well. That's good preaching right here. Hope you can hear it. Well, it's our custom now at the end of each of these messages that I'd like to just offer some reflection and prayer so that you can think about what you've been hearing and then maybe find ways to apply in practical ways the practice of Sabbath and rest in your own life. And so let's just pause. Would you bow your heads with me and just uh, close your eyes just for a couple of moments and listen to these reflections. Something that you may not know. Americans currently live more than twice as long as our country's founding mothers and fathers. Twice as long. We also have 20 to 30 times more income than our founding mothers and fathers. We have so much food that we're in far more danger of eating ourselves to death than of going hungry. Many of our homes, the homes we live in, are many times larger than what we actually need. And we're a whole lot better educated than people of any other time in history. In fact, we're the most educated people in, ever. So... You tell me, here's the question, you tell me, do we need more physical provision or do we need spiritual provision? You know the answer. Think about Jesus and his life. Some of you may not know that Jesus began his public ministry at about age 30, and of course that only lasted about three years to approximately age 33. 
And you would admit, I'm sure, that Jesus did more in three years than most people get done in a lifetime. I mean, in three years, he turned the world upside down. But let me just remind you, he knew how to stop. He would steal away to spend time doing nothing but being with God. We find this time and again in the Gospels. And we know that he kept the Sabbath every week of his life. Sabbath encourages thankfulness. It allows us to see miracles all around us. It increases our sense of wonder. It connects us with God's presence. Our cups run over. Our spiritual batteries are charged. Sabbath reminds me that God is the source of my life. Let me just remind you that poverty, both poverty and wealth, can threaten our faith and relationship with the Lord. It's true. And Sabbath is the great equalizer. It's the balancing point. See, on the Sabbath, the poor man is wealthy and the rich man is humble. We, we need Sabbath for the perspective it gives us. Think of it this way. You have more than you think if you think you have too little. And you have less than you think if you believe you have it all. Sabbath gives, a, gives us that balance. So honoring a Sabbath every week makes us more committed and more serious about our relationship with the Lord. And this is even more crucial today when things travel as fast as the speed of light. God actually designed us to spend one day a week at the speed of stop. So here's the prayer. Lord, teach us to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us now?